Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording live under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. Our goal and mission with this podcast and company is to arm humans with the tools necessary to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness. And today we continue that tradition with someone I know quite well, my wife, Christina Archer, nay Marino. Marino to her friends, of course. And we're going to dive into her story. She's got a rich food history story. She has been working as a food and beverage director here in the Valley for a local country club. She runs her own paleo recipe website. She's posting recipes in the Hardwater One community. She and her partner, Brianne, are producing a series of four cookbooks that are being released on Amazon. I think you guys are coming up on the fourth. So we're going to dive in her story, talk a little bit about what's coming down the pike for those guys, and uh, talk a little bit about food, one of the things that she probably loves more than me. So welcome on, babes. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you have a really interesting story and a rich background. Um, So I'm hoping that we can start at the very beginning and let the world know a little bit about your upbringing. So you come from a rich Italian history. So let's start there. What was What was it like being young Christina? Well, my parents both come from the same village in Calabria and they moved to Canada where I was born. When I was four, my mom opened a, an Italian restaurant, authentic Italian restaurant in Calgary. And I always tell people I started my first job when I was four because I literally was by my mom's side all the time. I was filling salt and pepper shakers. That was my first job. And I watched her cook for people. She made everything from scratch at that restaurant from bread, pasta, sauces, sausage she had a full menu it was a hundred you know it sat 110 people it was massive and i and she um, was probably the only one cooking and she was the only one cooking (laughs) she had different people work for her at, at different times but i you know i grew up and once i was old enough i was serving tables and in the kitchen and uh worked with her a lot and there was times when i hated it and times when i really loved it overall when i think about my experiences and where I am today, I'm super grateful for all those experiences because I know so much about food and, um, my passion for it continued. I, you know, would love, I'm a foodie. I go out to eat. I love to enjoy things. I learn about it. I just love reading cookbooks. I mean, I, I still to this day will will have a dream of a recipe and wake up and be like, oh my God, I got to make that. And I did that at a young age too. I remember being young and I'd run into the restaurant and be like, mom, I know I have an idea. This is what I want to make. And she always encouraged me and she always would give me the ingredients and let me do my thing. And, um, I had a lot, I have a lot of great memories, um, being at the restaurant and she had a really big kitchen. So she would always set me up in the corner with, a bunch of dough and I'd roll, roll it out or do whatever I was doing, playing with the different foods and, um, you, you know, just having fun, um, uh, in the kitchen, which I think, you know, is becoming a lost art to some degree. There's a lot of young people now and they don't even know how to fry an egg, you know, let alone bake bread and make pasta and, you know, do, do some crazy, uh, cool stuff in the kitchen. Like, uh, I got to learn at a young age. So would you say, is it fair to say that you pretty much inherited this joy that you get from food from your mom? 
Definitely, definitely. And it wasn't just in the kitchen. When I was young, my parents would bring me to Italy and I would experience food in Italy. And, you know, a lot of my aunts and uncles, they had farms, they grew their own food. Even my parents in Calgary had a garden and they would grow for what they could in the short months that was growing season in Calgary. But my, um, I got to see, you know, like my aunt in Northern Italy, she lives in Milano now. She has some land and she has everything from oranges to kiwis. She's got pomegranate, a big, huge pomegranate tree. And then she's got this massive vegetable garden. She's got fig trees and there's everything you can imagine. Grapes, they grow grapes and they make wine and everything is made, you know, grown and made. And um, it's super cool to experience that and the way food tastes. Um, it's just so different than when you buy things at a big grocery store. You know, the closest thing you can um, get now a days and here where we are or in Calgary is a fo- local farmer's market or growing it yourself really to get the same kind of flavors um, and tastes that you would um, when you're in Calabria, but not nothing compares. There's no tomato in the world that compares to the tomato that grows in Calabria. Why do you think that is? It's It's got to do with the the land, the soil, the heat, the terrain, um, and probably a little bit to do with the fact that when I go there, I'm on vacation and I'm relaxed and, you know, it just tastes so delicious. I can't even describe it. You smell it. You just, you pick it and you eat it. And you pick your tomatoes an hour before you make your tomato salad, you know. So is it just that the food, the flavors themselves and the aromas themselves are more intense? There's it's there's super intense the color that the smell, the taste, everything. I mean, even if you go up in northern Italy, it tastes good. It doesn't taste like a Calabrian to, um tomato. I mean the the soils are super rich down there. You've got the sea, you've got the um you know, you've got the mountains. It's super clean and fresh. There's a lot of volcanic soil down there that there's intense heat in the summer. So it's got all all sorts of benefits in land and in the air for the perfect um, setting to have a, an amazing vegetable grow. Yeah, so uh, obviously in the Italian culture, food is stereotypically a big deal. And uh, I think that um, my experience with New York Italians or Americanized Italian is very different from my experience with your family. Um, Every time we go to your house, you know, your mom is always in the kitchen, always making something, always cooking something. Would you say that's typical of the like traditional Italian family or is that something that's special or unique to your family? I think it's probably highlighted in my family. My mom, my grandma loved to cook and, um, Growing up in a a village where there wasn't a lot of money, you had to farm and you had to do everything to make, you know, everyone had their, their own pigs and they would butcher their own pig and make, make use of every part of the pig. Nothing went to waste it. You grow your own, um, everything, make your own pasta from scratch. Everything was made even, even to the olive trees. My mom had some land down um, in Calabria still, and 
when we went there last fall, we had, uh, you know, I helped pick the olives and they take the olives to this local olive press and would press and make the oil. So everything possible because there, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of money there, a lot, not a lot of economy there. So if you didn't produce for yourself, then you, you weren't going to eat very well. And, um, there's not, you know, it's expensive to go to the grocery store, buy certain things that are packaged or, um, you know, it, it, you've, you've got to produce for yourself. So I think that whole mentality, and then uh, of course, when you produce for yourself and you're farming and you have that, you know what, how things can taste and how delicious it is. I know my mom was really passionate about trying to recreate that, um, coming, you know, coming to Canada and she would, she would go as far as, you know, um, bringing the seeds for the parsley and the basil, um, and planting those seeds in, uh, in Canada and importing certain products through her luggage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there it's it, trying to make it last as long as possible. Um, but it's, it was really cool to be able to grow up in that and still experience it today when I visit home and, now that I've left home and I'm living in Arizona, you know, three hour flight away, I miss the luxuries of, you know, just going over to my mom's house and there's a giant wheel of Parmigiano Reggiano and you just like slice into it and have a, have a chunk of cheese that was imported from Italy. And, um, now I'm here and I have to drive far to get, you know, this you know, some Parmigiano Reggiano where it was just readily available always. Yeah. I understand that your mom has, a <laughs> an interesting little, uh, little side hobby where she likes to transport things by suitcase. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's been known, <laughs> she's been known to, to bring certain things, um, back from I- Italy and, uh, we're all just super excited. every time she comes home from Italy, cause we're like, I wonder what she's going to bring home this time. And a lot of it's food related. Yeah, didn't she pack some dishes at one point, pots and pans to travel with? Well, she actually took those pots and pans from Canada to Italy to to um, furnish her kitchen there. Um, because again, in the South, it's expensive to, to get things. Um, so it, it's much more available and easy to get in Canada like in the U S and just, so just packing that and bringing it there is makes more sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you were growing up and, and obviously you were doing some work in the restaurant, did you spend your teenage years working in the restaurant as well? Was that a viable thing for you to do at that point? Yeah, I worked from, by the time, probably when I was about 14, I started serving tables and worked all the way through college and all the way until my mom ended up closing the restaurant down in 2006. So I, you know, the, 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 the whole life of the, the restaurant, I, I really was working there. Um, besides, you know, my five year, almost five year stint when I worked out on cruise ships, I, uh, I was always, I was always at the restaurant and, um, and helping my mom. Were you uh, actively participating in um, like creating the food at that point or were you still serving? 
Yeah, I was always the server. I would um, I would help in the kitchen. We do a lot of prep. There was a lot of prep work to do when you're making all the pasta, making the sausages, making the sauces. So I was always doing the prep work and making everything. Um, we made homemade Caesar salad dressing. I mean, everything was homemade. So there's a lot of work behind that and prepping. And then I would mostly be a server. I like to be a server and, and get cash tips all the time. Cash is king, just like you say. <laughs> and um, Cash flow is king. And maybe. sometimes there was a few times, you know, where my mom had to run off and go do some, some errands and I would just stay at the restaurant and I would, you know, seat, sit some customers and take their order and then go back to the kitchen, make their order and serve them and do everything just like my mom did. I mean, she had that restaurant for, you know, 30 years. She served three generations of people, families in that community. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was sad for a lot of people when, when she closed the doors finally in 2006. Mm. Yeah. And so why did she end up closing that restaurant? Well, it was, uh, in Calgary, things were really booming at the time. Economy was booming. Rents were going up and her, you know, the landlord had come to her and said, well, basically I'm going to triple your rent. She was going month to month at the time. And she was considering, you know, it was time to sell or close down or do, you know, do something. She was thinking about that. So she hadn't signed, um, renewed the lease. And so when he, he did that, she basically was like, yeah, that's, that's not going to be sustainable. Triple, triple the rent. And it was a sad, it was a sad time because, so much of her life and passion was was in that restaurant and uh, a lot of us in the family wanted to see her relax and um, stop doing that that kind of work because it was really intense I mean she would open seven days a week she'd be doing everything for that place and we always wanted to see her slow down and take it easy um meanwhile you know once the restaurant did close she never really did slow down she just keep she'd keep shopping and buying and cooking and doing, you know, maybe not as much as when she had the restaurant, but, uh, she still has some old customers calling her up and asking if she'll jar up some tomato sauce for them. So, um, yeah, so she, she ended up closing the doors down. We ended up, she didn't even sell it. She just closed the doors down and it was time we had basically just removed everything we could from the space but you know a lot of lot of things you couldn't I mean you can take out the giant we did take the giant pizza oven that's in storage somewhere <laughs> but um you Is know that was, beside the the giant Hobart machine <laughs> yeah and the chairs and the tables uh, you know most most of the things that we could take out of that that space are all in storage now Oh, uh, you got to tell the story of the Hobart machine, man. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she had, uh, this, you know, the giant Hobart machine and makes the dough and she made the pizza dough and the bread and all that sort of thing. And I remember, um, you know, she, my mom, she's not very well versed on the computer, but when she has something in her head to do, she, she gets it done. She'll find a way. She'll, she'll make it happen. And so, um, she wanted to get, at first she wanted to hook up this commercial Hobart machine in the garage so she can make her, her, you know, pizza dough. <laughs> and we were all against it because we were like, well, you're not going to need 
you know, you're not going to need to make pizza dough for that many people where, you know, it's just you and dad living at home. There's not, you don't need that much. Yeah. And just to be clear to, to the listeners, like this is a machine that is the size that basically takes up the space of a refrigerator. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's not as tall as a refrigerator, but the thing is pretty big. And so she, um, so she went out and bought the KitchenAid stand mixer and she, you know, when you're, you buy that stand mixer, there's lots of packaging and it looks pretty big in the box. And when she took it out and put it on the counter, she was like, what the hell is this shit? This is too small. What am I going to make with this? So she, so she got, I don't know how she did it. Cause she, she didn't have a computer. She couldn't get online, but she found somehow found this machine there, a machine on, um, costco.ca she's like i called costco.ca i was like what costco.ca so i'm at you know i'm at home and i get a phone call i'm over at my parents house i get this phone call and it's dhl and they're like we you know we are scheduled to deliver a you know package to you do you have you know i um a hydraulic lift there and I'm like in a hydraulic lift this is a household why would I have in a hydraulic lift there and they're like well we have a, a delivery for you that's you know 800 pounds and I'm like what I, I have no idea what's going on so they show up and it's this giant machine but it's got like the the regular plug-in so, so it could be plugged into your home plug-in because the other Hobart machine was a commercial plug-in that um, needed a high voltage and so she, and the electrician refused to put it in the house because he said it was totally a fire hazard and against code. So, um, so she, so this machine shows up, she somehow called someone at Costco and figured out a way and, um, this machine showed up. So my dad, I mean, he's a whole nother amazing man, small little guy carries this massive machine. I don't know how he does it. He carries, he lifts heavy shit and he has all his life, but he carries this thing down into the basement. And so now we've got this huge machine and she's mixing her dough there. So she still uses it today. Um, and she'll make giant batches of pasta dough or pizza or bread, cake. I mean, she's for everything. Mm, it's amazing. Uh, your mom is an interesting story to me because of, I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate like what it means to not have something, you know, like to come from a small town. I think when people think small town, Southern Italy, they don't really grasp the the image of what that means, you know, like, like literally tiny villages, old houses, it's more agrarian, there's very little opportunity. And, you know, your mom and dad came to Canada by way of England, you know, North America. And here's your mom with like a, like a, what, second, third, fourth grade education, something like that. Mm -hmm. She starts a business, right? She, anything she sets her mind to, she creates, like she has this mindset of if she wants it, she's going to make it happen. There's no limitations. And, um, you know, your dad has been a, a largely supportive of that in a lot of, in a lot of ways, even though they, they argue back and forth constantly. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious, like, where did that, that mind, where that mindset sort of developed and if, and, and if it rubbed off on you and your development? I think it was, I can only imagine how they must have felt leaving Italy, only knowing Italian, you know, not speaking the language, not being able to read or write and moving into a whole 
new country where the language is different. They have to make, you know, make ends meet and they're the hardest workers in the world, the hardest working people I know. And they, they did everything and, you know, their, their legacy and their, um, their drive was family and providing for us. And, um, I think I really learned what I really learned from both of them was how to, you know, how important it was to work hard. Um, and I, you know, I, I've worked hard, you know, for things in my life. Um, I've also had a lot of, you know, support from especially my mom and my dad, and they've always wanted to, you know, give me things. And I appreciate that stuff. And I'm so grateful for that now, even more than probably at the time, you know, when I'm a teenager and I just, you know, want the, the latest basketball shoe or whatever it was that I wanted, they would always, you know, find a way and, and make it happen for me. So I had a great childhood and uh, I, um, I think that that, that now since this past year and making a move from Canada to the U S and the fears that I faced and the doubts and the, uh, the uncertainty, I realized, wow, like what, how did my parents feel when they did that? You know, what they did was even, you know, was even bigger, bigger change than I had to experience, you know, moving from Canada to the U S is, you know, it's very similar and it's very accessible. And nowadays, I mean, you can keep in touch with people, but my parents went 10 years without seeing their parents. And Mm. I can't even imagine going that long without seeing my family. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't think I, I mean, obviously, you know, you've communicated this to me a few times, um, you know, how difficult the transition was for you or has been for you in some sense of the word to, to come here and leave everything that you've known back in Calgary. And I think there's a part of me that doesn't really appreciate that because of all the technology, because of all the access that we have, because it's a, a short flight. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how you were dealing with that internally and what was going through your mind as you experienced this, tra- this huge transition, actually immigrating to another country. I think, um, it's kind of a joke now. I think when you, you, you would say to me, you know, it's time to cut the umbilical cord and, and it, it, in, to some degree, that's, that's part of it where I, um, I was the baby of the family and I lived the longest at my parents' house. I, um, you know, our family's really close. My brother, my sister, we would always get together and see each other quite often. So to, um, to leave what I know, I think it was just the uncertainty about what my like new life will be like. And, um, even though I, I traveled, you know, for five years and I had left and I've seen the world, I always had this place called home. And, um, for those, for that transition, it was, it was, it was more so now that I've done it, I think it was more so such a story in my head that wasn't true. It was almost like I was my own barrier that was in the way of seeing what else is possible. And now, now that I've, you know, been a year here and away from home, home, well, from what was my home, because now my home is here. I think, um, I realized that I, I made it more difficult 
then it needed to be based on the thoughts that I had in my head about what, what, and the fears, you know, I would, I would think, oh my gosh, like, what if I, what if I don't find a job? And what if I don't find a friend? And what if I don't, you know, what is it going to be like? And uh, when am I going to see them? And, you know, just, just creating all these irrelevant, irrational stories in my head that made, made it more difficult along the way. Yeah. Were you going to say something? (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought you were going to keep going. Yeah. So I was just, um, you know, I, I think, I think that was the biggest, the biggest barrier for me or the biggest struggle. And, uh, I, I see it. I see now that I was, you know, I was creating that it wasn't a reality. So what was it that was causing you to create that though? I think, uh, you know, a lot of people deal with these sorts of, you know, negative self-talk, you know, um, these sort of negative stories you run on a loop through the brain, you know, but what was going through your head? You know, what, what caused you to want to create that? I don't know. I, I, what it comes down to is probably my need for certainty, my, um, and holding on to what my life looked like, what, you know, I was, I had to create an identity for myself that I was, you know, this person that lived here and that, you know, did this job and, uh, you know, I do these things versus just believing in myself as a, you know, as a strong, powerful, you know, capable person. And wherever I go, that capable, strong person comes with me, right? Mm. It, uh, you know, I wasn't defined by what I do. I'm defined by how I'm being. And wherever I go, whether I'm in Italy or Canada or the U.S., I'm my own person and I can create... Um, whatever I want to create or whatever success I've had, I can do that wherever I go. Cause I'm, I'm the cause of that. And I think uh, there was times when I was feeling that fear and that doubt. And I would say, you know what, like I've, I've created what I have and I've been successful where I am and I can go somewhere else and do the same thing because I've done that already. And I would, that would, that was some of the self-talk that helped me get through um, but through it, but in the moment in, in, in thinking about it, it was, you know, it was that, that was holding me back or creating the fear. You know, I knew it was going to do it. I had, you know, such support from you and I felt, um, excited about what was new too. So it wasn't all, you know, doubts and fears because I was also really excited about what was unknown and, um, I was super excited not to have to shovel snow anymore and, <laughs> um, and coming down here. So I'm such a relationship focused person and, um, I realize wherever I go, I can make new relationships and I've been able to, to create some really great relationships just, you know, in this past year moving here. So I, I have more confidence now because I've been able to actually experience that big move and, and see, you know, my results in my life, you know? Yeah, for sure. I I was a little surprised, I think, because you were dealing with, um, this sort of stressor, if you will, of being sort of relocated, even though it was by choice, because I think in looking at your, your story along the way, you know, when you spent five years basically at sea, 
you know, away from your home during that time period, you look to that time as one of the most adventurous of your life and you experienced so much. And like you said, you saw so much of the world. I was thinking that you would look more to this as the same thing sooner. I didn't realize it would take, um, ever how long it took for you to sort of wrap your mind around the fact that, you know what, Hey, I can have a fantastic life wherever I go because I'm the Genesis. Like you said, you're the cause of that, which Mm -hmm. is a beautiful way of of phrasing that. So how do you reconcile the two? Because I take it from the stories that you told me about the cruise ship. This was before I met you that that was all excitement. Did you experience any anxiety when you're away from home during that time of your life? You know, at the age that I was, it was so exciting. I had such a wanderlust and I, I didn't have any fears whatsoever. I, I don't remember. If I did, I don't remember it. I just remember, oh my God, I'm going to the Caribbean and I'm going out to work on the ship. And I, you know, in every contract I would do and I would have an offer to go somewhere else new in the world, I was just excited about it. So, and along the way, I got to meet meet so many like cool people and that whole experience of going away, I would go on a contract for four to five months and then I would come home and I'd be home for about four weeks and then I'd go back out. I would see so much in the world. I mean, I'm traveling Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand. I mean, all seven continents I got to and I would come home and, you know, people were just at home doing, doing the same thing. And it was each time I would come home, I would be motivated to want to leave again because I would be around people that were, you know, just doing the same old shit, like living the same (laughs) old life. And I was like, um, I'm out of here, man. Like you people don't even know, like they haven't even left the country, Mm -hmm. let alone seeing the things and experiencing the things that I was. So I was, you know, I, I was 20 to 25, the years that I was doing that. And it was, it was super, super fun. And I think, um, I think maybe even I didn't, I didn't fall into, you know, routine or habit of life and living and really grounding myself. I I hadn't been grounded really. I had gone to, you know, went to, you know, I was at high school and then, then college. I played basketball for a year and a half at Mount Royal college. And then I was ready to I was ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't in a, a relationship at the time and I didn't have anything holding me down. So I was just, it was perfect. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that now because it sounds like there was no fear at all about jumping into this new thing. And, you know, obviously your life expanded in a tremendous way. I mean, you've done something that very few people on the planet have had the opportunity to do. And that is you know, visit all the continents, for example, and see all these different port cities and visit all these different countries and experience all these different cultures. And I mean, I look back at that and I can only imagine that that was one of the best educations that any individual could possibly have. It, it certainly was. I mean, I had such amazing experiences. I mean, like the first time I ever went scuba diving was on the Great Barrier Reef. You know, it was like people who scuba dive regularly, only dream of getting there. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for, for these incredible experiences that I got to, to have. I mean, I even in, when it, when I think about the food experiences, you know, the first time I ever had Thai food was in Pattaya, Thailand. Like, really? Like who does that? 
who, you know, who, who goes to Vietnam and, you know, I, I got to taste cuisines around the world that I had never even tasted before in, in the, in the city that I lived in. And, um, it was, it was really, it was really, really cool to be able to, to be at that age and to, to be there and see, you know, see things and experience things. And, um, I think at the time I don't even realize, you know, like anyone, you just, I didn't realize how much I was learning and how much experience I was gaining, um, until I look back and, or until I start having a conversation and talking about my experiences and, and people are, you know, you just, you just don't really, you can't, especially when it comes to travel, you just can't read something or watch a video of a place and really understand, um, or really experience what it truly is. I mean, when you walk in, I mean, when you're in Europe and you walk in to some of the most amazing churches, um, and experience that you, you, there's no describing it. It's not the same. A picture just can't capture that. Mm-hmm. So to, to see certain things and experience certain things there, uh, I think probably one of the most powerful experiences I have had was when we were in Japan and we went to the, um, uh, I think we were, we were at the Hiroshima, like the atomic bomb museum. And there was some, other passengers that were on the ship that were actually, you know, part of that era. And they were, they were walking in and they were seeing this for the first time since the war, really. Um, they hadn't been back into Japan and there was, you know, a helmet on display and it had a piece of skull there. It was the last part of that human being that was left from that bomb. And, you know, people were just tears coming down their faces. It was so silent. It was so eerie. And to walk through and to see the pictures and the, the, you know, the remains and the different things that were in the museum was, was so incredibly powerful. Like I get goosebumps talking about it now. And that was, you know, that was over 20 years ago that I experienced that. You just, you just can't read a book or an, you know, an encyclopedia or any, or go on Google and see something and really truly know. You can't watch a movie and know you, you stand there and you experience it and it's a whole different level of learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's knowing and then there's knowing, right. Knowing at your core, mm-hmm. um, having that visceral experience. I can't imagine what it was like to see, you know, literally body parts, the remains of some, some of the, one of the most horrendous events in human, human history, actually. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which we, just recently had this um, fire at the church. I believe it was in Paris, was it not? Yeah, the Notre Dame church. And you you visited uh, Notre Dame, did you not? Yeah, I, I did. And um, I haven't followed the story very closely. I think it was just yesterday. Um, but that, you know, iconic steeple tumbled um, in a video I watched. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I... I can't believe that that that's falling down. That's, that's completely, I mean, I think the church was built, you know, this built in like 1185. It started at the building and it finished in like 1300s or something like that. I mean, it took years and years of, you know, it's just beautiful 
um, the way they, they, you know, built those buildings and, and, um, sad. And I hope that they're able to rebuild and, um, make it, I'm sure they will and make it great again. Um, however, you know, that it's just, it's kind of like the twin towers. I remember I, when I was in New York and I, I had a cappuccino with my uncle on the top of the twin towers and, you know, to think, you know, going back and when I went back to New York after they were gone and it was just a memorial and I think, wow, like I got to experience the Twin Towers and see what they were, you know, before they went down. I mean, it's, um, it's history, right? It's, uh, and it's an experience you have that, um, you have to have there and be there, right? Like it's just, um, anyone that travels knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure. So what was, what do you think was probably one of the most memorable moments from all of those trips across the sea around the continents? It's so tough to pin that down. I mean, it was so, it was so long ago and there were so many great experiences. Um, I met some really amazing people and saw some really great things. Um, I, I couldn't tell you just one. Um, I know I, I was, I don't know why it's popped into my head, but in, uh, when I was in Argentina, the tango dancers were incredible to see live. They are, their, their feet moved so fast that you can actually see their feet. Um, and seeing just wherever I was like being able to see people in their culture doing what they're passionate about. I think it doesn't matter what it, where it was or what it was. Um, I think when I got a chance to experience people, um, you know, truly living their passion or doing something, whether we were going to a show or we were in Shanghai watching the, you know, the acrobat show or, um, or we were, you know, just in a, um, you know, a, a, a little town, seeing a family, you know, making waffles in Belgium, you know, whatever it was, as long as, uh, that human being, wherever in the world was doing something they were passionate about, it was like a super cool experience. For sure. For sure. Do you have any regrets of that, of, of all that time you spent at sea or is it all sort of sunshine and unicorns? (laughs) Well, you know, I, I had this thing where I was like, I'm just going to do everything, whatever it costs. I'm going to spend the money on excursions, on experiences. Um, I, you know, I went skydiving in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I did that slingshot thing when it, when it had just come out. I don't think it existed anywhere else on earth. Um, the people in New Zealand are very adventurous. I think the guys that took me out skydiving were like, um, the first people to bungee jaw, jump off a skydiver. I'm like, why someone would want to do that? Like I a have skyscraper, no you mean? No, like a, you, someone's, you they jump, bun- they're attached jump. to each other. They skydive, right? And the one guy attached bungee jumps off the guy that's skydiving when the, when the, the parachute goes up. And so they were literally the first people on earth to, to do that. That's insane. <laughs> and they were really proud of it. There was, I can't even, I don't remember the name of the skydiving school, Jesus. but, um, uh, you know, that was, there were, there's just experiences like that, that just like are mind blowing. Um, I don't know why that came to head. I totally forgot what you asked me. 
What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> like, to, you know, my my brain is starting to pull pull on the archives from twenty years ago yeah, when I for was sure. when I was traveling and. No, you answered the question. I was asking you about some of your most memorable experiences, and uh, I think you, <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I mean, um, from that to being held up at knife point on the Copacabana beach, <laughs> um, going through a, a an insane, um, you know, some some crazy shit happening on on the cruise ship. Um, you know, from a guy biting a guy's face off, and what you know, um, to you know someone. Uh, you know, throwing themselves off the top of the ship um, and killing themselves. I mean, there's all sorts of craziness that happens when you're out there. And uh, when we were in South America, I always remember I have a picture of it because we we had the ship had come out of a fjord and the um, the wind gust was so so bad the captain had miscalculated and the the ship listed like I think it was like 25 degrees, which is a big problem when you're in on a big ship like that and the grand piano that was bolted to the ground in the in the one uh, room had literally just flown like broken off its legs and smashed into a million pieces against um one of the walls in the room and you know luckily no one was hurt in that but we had um I guess I was hurt because the computer screen had flown off the desk and hit me in the eye and <laughs> cut my eye open. It, some crazy stuff that happened, you know, it's, uh, it, it went on for on and on. And some of my, my friends that I'm still in contact with would, um, would be able to speak to some of the, <laughs> the craziness. So, uh, okay. So the story about a guy biting someone's face off, I got to hear this. <laughs> what in the hell? Well, it was, uh, it was kind of crazy. We were, we were actually sailing in Alaska and, um, there was on, I worked for Holland America cruise cruise lines and the, uh, the staff, we had Filipino staff that worked in the, um, the restaurants as servers. Then we had Indonesian staff that were room stewards and also they worked in dining room as well. And they, um, there was, you know, there's a guy on board that had the job of sorting garbage because they, you know, when you're on a ship, you have to make, you know, make the most of the space and they would sort all sorts of things from compost to plastics to the garbage and what could be, you know, fired. And, and so, you know, this guy had, was doing that job for like eight months. I imagine he just went, he went crazy. He was in his uh, room and, um, somehow he had uh, managed to put up a like a lock on the door you know one of those what do they call it the like a deadbolt like a deadbolt lock type of thing which you know you're not allowed to put obviously on on those cabins and he was in a lot of them have they would be in rooms of four um so they'd have two bunk beds and four people to a room and so his roommate um was in the room with him and i don't know if they what happened but he just lost it he put the deadbolt on he locked the door and he went cannibalistic on the guy and just like was literally like eating him (laughs) like biting him he had some sort of um I don't know if it was a knife or a pen or something and one of them was stabbing the other so we had you know uh 
the ship's officer and, you know, people had called the captain and they, you know, the fire alarm was going on and we were trying and they were trying to get into the room and we were banging on the door and we couldn't break through the door um, until finally, I, I don't know how they got through, but, or if he, he just like gave up and um, opened the door. So we, because we were in Alaskan waters, he actually um, would be tried uh, in, in America. Um, and so they, uh, they arrested him for attempted murder and took him to Seattle, um, wow. to, you know, to jail basically. <laughs> Jesus no Christ. idea whatever happened to that guy. But I, all I remember was coming out of my cabin. Cause this is like, I think it was like two in the morning or something. And, and there's like a, a, a stream of blood all down the hallway and, um, you know, everyone trying to help the guy that was, you know, that had got attacked. Um, and you know, it was just, just craziness going well, that's on. That's nuts. Yeah. I don't think you've ever told me that story. Yeah. Maybe for good reason. Yeah. It wasn't a good story to remember. I didn't actually see him. Um, they had emergency air, like, uh, they had a helicopter come and, um, evacuate the guy that got injured and took him to um to the hospital in seattle that was the closest like major hospital from where we were sailing Mm -hmm. um so yeah there's there was some craziness happening Uh, yeah well it sounds like it's uh, one adventure after the next yeah even to go from uh, skydiving to face eating that's that's a big (laughs) 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 we had uh we had you know um, drug smuggling happening. Um, when we were sailing into Jamaica, I guess they had, you know, drugs in Jamaica. Come on. (laughs) This well, this is the the nineties, right? So it's the nineties and, um, the security was like, it blows my mind compared to like nowadays you have to go through the metal detector and get scanned and this and that. And you have a photo ID created when you in a scanning kind of technology to get onto the ship. Well, when I worked on the ship, they had a little friggin' this week it was yellow and it was like, this is my ID. And it was just a printed little card that was yellow and it had your name on it. Like easily like there was one security guard you just show up at the gangway and you'd be like here's my my id (laughs) walk (laughs) on the ship like seriously how they didn't like people like people oh i'm sure it did happen i'm sure people like walked on walked on the ships and um the security was i don't know it just wasn't needed i guess but it you know, it would be yellow, blue, red, you, like what are the five ma- major colors and then cycle back to yellow again. And that was, that was all it was. It was crazy how easy it would have been for like a, a major terrorist to, you know, attack on a cruise ship at, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, even now, nowadays it's, you know, it's crazy the the security that's in place and the cameras and the technology that they can use but back then there was nothing like that you know right for sure that's insane it's amazing to look back and uh i mean obviously you, you know my leanings toward freedom i would prefer to have it that that way but by the same token you have to balance that with what's you know what's safe when you're on a ship and you're not allowed to actually bring something to protect yourself right mm-hmm. 
But um, so after you, you know, were cruising around on these contracts for you said what was it, about five years or so. Yeah. Was what did you do at this point when you came off the ships and you decided to go into something else? At what point in your development did you start getting more serious about, you know, what you wanted to do uh, with your life and what you wanted to do in terms of, you know, developing a repertoire with food and wine? Well, I fell in love with food and wine, actually, on, you know, I already was in love with food and wine before the cruise ship. But then on the cruise ship, I got to taste some amazing foods and part of my job when I was on the ship was to host tables with the, like a sh- ship officer or the captain and, um, and dine. And we'd have, you know, caviar, lobster, baked Alaska, you know, all these amazing gourmet foods where, wherever we traveled, we would have a buffet for the guests and it might be a theme of wherever we were. So if we were in the Netherlands, it was like all the foods from the Netherlands. And then the next day we would be in France and be at all France buffet. And and the next day we would be in Spain. It would be all the Spanish food. Like, so wherever we, we were traveling and I got, I got to, you know, I was so curious and I wanted to try everything and experience everything. And then when we were off in ports, we would go. And that was the thing that I love to do is like, let's go find the local place to eat and the experience the food and the culture of of that place so I um you know I I became I you know it was a like education (laughs) you know you couldn't you couldn't possibly learn that through books again and I got to drink wines um and experience uh you know all sorts of cocktail beverages even um because we would have I had an account where I could walk around, socialize with guests and buy them beverages and drink with them, you know, like that was a hard job, you know? (laughs) So it was, um, it was super cool. So when I, when I stopped sailing and I went back, um, to Calgary and I went back to school and I was taking business admin and, um, and then I, you know, got a part-time job working at Starbucks and I just, you know, I continued my foodie passions through, you know, cooking. My mom still had the restaurant, I'd be at the restaurant or I'd be, um, you know, at home cooking or I would go out and eat. Uh, I'd love to go to different restaurants. Calgary actually, and today it's even like amazing how many uh, different kinds of restaurants are, um, are up and coming and just, uh, really cool, kitschy places. Um, so just experiencing it that way, I hadn't never like actually worked as a chef in a kitchen or, uh, um, worked like, um, I guess, yeah, like I didn't, you know, didn't go to school and culinary school besides, um, just with my hobby around wine, I, I decided to get my sommelier level one, just taking it as a hobby, not because it was my job or I worked in, I didn't work in a wine store or anything like that. So I just, just through love and passion of, of food and wine, I just would learn even beer or whiskey or whatever it was, wherever I would go, I'd want to, you know, what was, what was it that you, you had to, you would try, you know, like if we go down to the South, well, we're going to eat some barbecue and we're going to you know try some bourbon and that sort of thing. So if I go to Japan, I want to have some sushi, right. Or wherever it was, um, it's about, it's about having, you know, when in Rome, do what, do what the Romans do. 
Yeah, it sounds like you're just infinitely curious. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, find yourself sort of honing your skills at home then? Yeah, really um, at home. I think uh, when it was about 2009, I found what I, I found myself was, um, you know, I, I found myself overweight. I was enjoying the food and the wine, you know, about 40 pounds, 50 pounds overweight. And I um, came across CrossFit and started getting into shape again. And then I um, I was at a CrossFit gym in, uh, was it, it was Kelowna, BC. I was in a CrossFit gym and I was there for work. At the time I was working for Jugo Juice and I had, I was there for a week. And so I, I was doing, you know, I did a few CrossFit classes. And then I remember, uh, the guy that owned the gym was like, Hey, like, well, why don't you, you know, come, we're having a little nutrition seminar and why don't you come check it out? And he was, and so he did this little seminar. There was only maybe five or six people in the class. And, and he was talking about the zone diet, eating like 80, 20 and, and, uh, a paleo type lifestyle. And he introduced the, um, paleo solution by Rob. No, the paleo diet. That was the first one. Um, and so I went, um, he gave me the book and then I, I read it and I got really infatuated. And so then I became infatuated with how do I create, create some of the foods that I love, but paleo. And so I just had cut pasta out and bread out and, um, and that, but then I was like, well, how can I recreate something that tastes good and that still gives me that feeling like I'm I'm eating the things that I grew up eating and wanted to eat. So, um, and I was getting results. I was, you know, losing weight and I was happy with my new, you know, the way I was feeling. And, um, and then, you know, you, I think it was like 2013 when you and your savvy web skills created a website for me to post recipes. And then I started to post recipes and then I became even more infatuated with really creating content and creating recipes for that, um, as like my hobby. So I'd go to work and I'd come home and I'd make a recipe or I'd think about what I could do and what I could create and what new ingredients I could use. And I would go to these like cool, um, different, you know, Calgary's really great for all the different authentic, um, ethnic grocery stores too. So, I was looking for flours that I could use that were gluten-free, that weren't like grains. Um, and I would look for, you know, different kinds of things to play with. And, um, and then I would just record those recipes. I mean, just literally take photos using my phone. I didn't have a fancy camera or anything like that. And you can tell actually, when you look at some of those early recipes I posted, but, um, but it was just such a, such a, um, creative escape for myself, um, doing that and, uh, recording all those, those different recipes throughout the years. So was it the, so was it your, uh, sort of desire to lose weight that got you, uh, exposed to the, the paleo and the CrossFit sort of a thing, or was it the other way around? I think it was, um, you know, a little bit of both. I had set, set some new goals for myself and health goals. And, um, and then when I, um, was playing around with this idea of the paleo lifestyle and the different 
different ways, I was more challenged and intrigued and curious in um, creating new things with, with like new ingredients that I hadn't had never, uh, you know, I was like finding things like tiger nut flour and looking for, you know, and doing a lot of research too. And I was, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts, reading a lot of different books and getting, you know, and then really experimenting with myself and how I felt. And, um, but there was this, this whole drive to master recipes with the newest, I want, I I was, it was almost like, I want to find the most unusual ingredient that I can use. That's paleo, right? That's different, you know? And, um, and I would, you know, go into Jamaican stores and go into East Indian stores and go into all these different, um, and there's like these really cool different ingredients that you can find spices and, um, you know, at the end of the day, you can have just meat and veg. It's really easy to eat paleo. Um, but I was like on this mission to uncover something really cool and, and play around with it. And, you know, I spent so much money on groceries, as you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and had so many different kinds of flowers and seeds and nuts and, you know, ingredients to, you know, to create something different. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you said, uh, I think you said, you know, it's really easy to eat paleo. You just eat meat and veg, right? <laughs> but that's, I mean, that can be a lot of different diets, right? You're just basically eating real food. But to say it's easy, I mean, why do more people not choose that path, especially people who want to be healthier, you know, improve their wellness, um, drop weight? I mean, one of the easiest ways to drop weight is just to eat clean and drink water, right? I know that once you started posting recipes, you had people start reaching out to you saying, Hey, you know, I see that you posted X, Y, Z dish, right. You know, and, um, I see your results. I see that you've, you've been, you've been able to create some weight loss. You've been able to create this bank of recipes. How do these two things relate and can you help me? Mm -hmm. So what did you do at that point? Like, did you start to see that, did you start to see that or recognize that there was power in the fact that you were, you know, sort of making what people might see as sort of bland, common dishes taste good, that there might be a market for that? Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely um, creativity. People are looking for for something new, but flavorful. And from from my experience with people, I think it's just they don't, it's either they don't, they don't make it a priority. I wouldn't say they don't have time because if it was a priority, they would make time to cook. Um, but I think there, there's a lot of fear for people that don't know how to cook. And so the time and the energy that is required to do something that you're unsure of, or you're not, you know, you're not confident in is, is, is that much makes it that much more difficult, right? Um, versus, you know, I, I mean, me chopping an onion and prepping, prepping something, you know, really quick to me, it feels it's easy, but I'm, I've done it a million times, right? Just like anything for anyone. Um, so I think that that, that's the barrier and, and people want, want things, um, fast and easy and done. And, um, what I don't think people 
understand is like it, it requires time and practice and like you say, get the reps in, right? Like you got to get the reps in and chop up, chop a few onions. Like <laughs> you got to work at your, you know, family restaurant and chop, try making onion soup for, you know, a hundred people. You see how many onions you got to clean and chop for that. My mom and I'd be like crying in, in the kitchen <laughs> with all the onions in there. But, um, you know, that, that's not realistic and not many people will have that, that opportunity, but it's just, once you start doing something over and over again and you get the practice, then it becomes something that you do. It, it doesn't become like, you know, a difficult thing anymore. So pe- you know, when people appreciate that or will, are willing to do, do the work and, um, in whatever it is that they're doing, but in the kitchen specifically, I think a lot of people are intimidated and they just want things, you know, easy or done, prepared, you know. Um, So, you know, people, you know, if you have the money and you can just purchase prepared meals and that's great, a lot of people don't have that. Um, It doesn't have to be expensive. once you have developed a palate for clean food though like it's you're you become more driven to to make your own food and eat clean i think a lot of people are used to the high processed flavors and the artificial flavors and you know i mean they literally make doritos like in a lab purposely like chemically made so that you eat more, (laughs) you know, like there's, um, they have, what are the, I don't even know what the title is for those, those kind of scientists, but they're literally like just, um, trying to create that, the flavor that will trigger certain chemicals in your body to make you want to eat more. And, and so if you're used to eating those kinds of foods, it, it becomes even more difficult because then you'll eat, you know, you might eat some sauteed vegetables and a salad and some chicken and you're just not satiated. There's just chemically like your body is like, what the fuck? Like, give me my Doritos or <laughs> give me, you know, if you're whatever that might be. So it takes, it takes time to almost cleanse your body from different flavors. So I, I always say it's like, you know, taking baby steps and, and I did that, right? Like I didn't go from, eating pasta to boom, eating to clean paleo. Like I had, I had weaned myself off certain things slowly. And I had, you know, I didn't eat the, uh, you know, the, the regular toast in the morning. I went to like Ezekiel bread and then I went from Ezekiel bread. I, I started making like sweet potato. I called it like, I like cut the sweet potato and you can, just grill, put it, bake it. And then that was my base for my toast instead of bread. And I would, you know, I would still make, you know, paleo treats and I would have one or two in a day. And I would feel like I was still having that, you know, that muffin or that cookie or that something. Um, although it wasn't the bread, I mean, at the end of the day, I was still getting in the calories, but I was getting more nutrition. And, um, I really think that when your your body's getting the nutrition it needs that you 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 don't eat as much. Yeah, for sure. That's I think there's something to that. I mean, I know that as uh someone who's I've never really had a weight problem. I've never really had 
a huge sweet tooth. Like I love chocolate, which, you know, that's my, that's my huge vice. Mm. But aside from, from dark chocolate, I mean, my primary source of calories is basically leaves like lettuce, that sort of thing, different types of lettuces, leaves, and then some source of protein. And then on, on rare occasion, I'll have like wasa crackers, just throw some crunch in there. Right. And then it tears up my intestines cause they're wheat. <laughs> But, but, you know, it's that it it gives me that crunch that you miss when you're eating clean a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. I think from from my perspective, like it's almost impossible to get, you know, to spend enough, especially if you're busy, to spend enough time eating to get the required amount of calories if you're eating clean. Mm-hmm. Like it's very difficult to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, you you feel like you're eating more food. Definitely. Um, you're definitely eating more food, like it's definitely more chewing involved. <laughs> yeah, for right? sure. So you're not using hyper palatable food with it's like dense concentration of calories that just doesn't, doesn't exist in nature. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, there's danger in it too, because people don't realize how much, m- how much more they need to eat, um, in order to get the calories in and, and your metabolism will adjust and it will, um, have a, a new set point, right? You know, that you've heard a lot of the people, a lot of people damaging, you know, their metabolism when they go on these like 1100 calorie diets that, um, you know, that are so restrictive. And then if they, you know, change the way they eat, they end up gaining weight or they end up, you know, they end up not, not being healthy really. Um, and so there's, you know, that, that new reverse dieting term that's count, that's mm-hmm. been talked about is like incorporating, um, more calories week by week and increasing your daily calorie intake to, to, us, you know, a, back to a, a rate that, um, you is sustainable really, um, where you're not feeling hangry and on, you know, uh, under eating and, uh, that sort of thing. And it's probably, I mean, for each person's different, but, um, there's, uh, everyone's so different, you know, and nutrition, it's not a, there's no cookie cutter way about it. And each person, my philosophy over these years has, has changed and evolved because, um, you know, new, I've tested my body on certain things. And when, um, you know, I want to eat to where I have like good energy and I feel, um, and I can feel, I feel that like vibrancy and that I almost call it like my, my mojo or that pep in my step. And, um, I, you know, I, I've done keto and that wasn't good for me. I, you know, I didn't feel well on it. So each person individually has got to test and, and, be, you know, be a guinea pig to themselves and to find that balance. And uh, I think that it changes and it evolves and that, you know, it's never just going to be one way. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's also, you know, knowing your purpose, right? Like if you have, if your purpose is to, is to drop fat, then you're going to eat a specific way. If your purpose is to perform, that's probably going to look very different. You're probably going to need to take in some more carbohydrates, for example, and, you know, especially if you're going to be, uh, you know, in an athletic situation and the average person that sits behind a desk and walks from their car to the office, they don't really have that high of a caloric need, but yet, you know, the foods that a lot of times you find on people's desks are, 
you know, hyper palatable, like fast food type stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see, I think this obesity epidemic, because the vast majority of people have jobs, they they're stressed, they have kids, they have, you know, mortgage bills, you know, all the stress stressors of life, if you will, bearing down on them. Mm -hmm. So chemically inside their body, their hormonal situation is off. And then you throw in lack of movement and shitty food. Well, I would add in there, no, no sleep. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sleep would be a big piece. So, I mean, I I still, I I would still, you know, argue that because, you know, there's people that, you know, plateau and they can't drop that weight and they play around with their diet and they actually increase the calories and all of a sudden they drop weight. So, you know, it's, it's just individual, right? Um, obviously, you know, I don't think that it's likely that a person can go on a McDonald's diet and lose, lose a bunch of weight, or maybe they could, and they'll, they'll end up, you know, just being malnutritioned. Well, calorically they could. Yeah. Calorically they could, but I'm just, I just think that my, I guess the point I'm trying, I'm wanting to convey is that you have to, you know, you have to, you have to become in tune with your own body and, and test different things. And you can't, um, like the way I, I eat can't be the way you eat. Like we're two completely different humans. Um, and what, so, so for me to just say, here's the diet, you know, do this diet and you'll get this, that that's not true. And it's unlikely that that's going to happen. So, the whole, um, idea of, you know, here's a meal plan that you should follow. And, um, I think that it could be a tool for a temporary time, but when we're talking long-term sustainable health there, that's going to, that's going to require a lot of, you know, self-testing and different things, um, so that you, um, you can figure out what it is for you. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, all diets are a blunt tool, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like, uh, if you look back at kind of what we started with when we first got together, which was, um, paleo, you know, we're following more of us of a, a strict paleo sort of a, uh, regiment, but then there were times where we would, you know, add in dairy and if dairy didn't, you know, mess with my system, you know, I would have dairy. If it did, then, Hey, at least I knew. Right. So I think having this idea that, you know, a ah, diet is going to fix you, I think is the wrong mindset, but having this idea that you can start with this elimination diet, which is really what a paleo diet is, or, you know, something along that keto diet is more or less the same thing, but having some form of elimination diet and then adding back in things that are going to serve you in the long run. I mean, that's really the only way to test and try, mm-hmm. right? Observe how your stomach feels, how your intestines feel. Do you get gas? Does it cause bloating? All of these sorts of things, you know, maybe that's not for you if that's the result that you get. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's true. I think at the end of the day, you know, if you're eating real food, whole foods, lots of veg, you know, you're getting a variety in, um, that you're not becoming obsessed, right? I always like those, you know, those, the jokes about, you know, the obsessive CrossFitter that all they do is talk about CrossFit and talk about, (laughs) or the obsessive, I eat keto and you're, you're, you know, or I'm vegan and, you know, like it's unhealthy. It's not, um, 
and it's not sustain sustainable. You said vegan. 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 <laughs> Vegans. Vegans. What's wrong with these people? Crazy. Um, so it's just having a balance and how does it fit within your lifestyle? How does it fit within your um, community? And how are you um, able to, you know, sustain this when you're at work, when you're on the weekend, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, people, people go on these restrictive diets, but then they become, you know, a lot of people sometimes can get depressed and they're missing out or they like will avoid social gatherings because they're like, well, if I go there, then I'm going to have to eat. Um, it's more about, um, making a choice and being empowered. And you know what, if you go to a birthday party and you have a piece of cake, eat it and be, be happy with the choice that you made to do it. I mean, eating is so, so much psychological too, for me as well, because if you beat up yourself or beat yourself up because, you know, oh, I had a piece of cake and I'm horrible. And you go down that, that psychological pathway. Well, I totally screwed it. So I might as well just have 10 bottles of wine. And now you really fucking screwed. It It was like, you were fine when you had the, the birthday cake, but now you really like royally screwed your system up because you just drank 10 bottles of wine because you were feeling bad about eating the one piece of birth cake. <laughs> Seriously? Like just how about you just, you know, you have a piece of cake and you're like, you know what? I'm choosing to have this piece of cake and I'm going to eat it. And, um, and that's that. Yeah. Right. And, um, and stop at one piece of cake instead of saying, well, it's my cheat day and I'm going to have this whole cake where, you know, I had even gone there at one point where I was doing the, you know, the one cheat day. And I did that for months where, I would be like, oh my God, on Saturday, wait till Saturday comes because I'm going to have chips and popcorn and I'm going to eat wine and I'm going to have this and that. And, you know, it didn't take very long until I was like, you know, three days recovering from that overdose of crazy eating that I had that I was like, you know what, it's just not even worth it. Like, uh, so then it became to a cheat meal to, to now, like, I don't even like to use the word cheat. It's just it's not a cheat. I'm just, I'm going to eat this because I'm choosing to eat this. Yeah. I mean, I think or I'm not going to eat yeah, this com- because I choose not to eat it. Sure. I mean, it, again, I think it comes back to purpose, you know, like what is the purpose of your, of your method of eating, whatever that thing is. If your purpose is weight loss, like you can't go around thinking you're going to have a cheat day where you have wine because wine is going to throw your system off for the next three days. You know, hormonally you're going to be off. But at the end of the day, like you said, you can't live life in guilt either, right? And there's there's some research that's coming out, and I'll have to look up the study, but it basically centers around people who, like, eat traditionally crappy food, you know, like maybe they eat fast food, um, but yet they don't really have the side effects you would expect from that because mentally they're happy with their life like they go into this place where you know what they feel good they're uh, they're focused on the good things in their lives and they think or they have this mentality that whatever they eat it's going to serve them in some way shape mm-hmm. or form and i think we've lost a little bit of this because if you look at um you know like traditional culture you know like i grew up in a household where we said a blessing before we ate and so i looked into this a little bit and really there's, this is a good idea. It's a good idea to take a moment and just think about how the food that you're going to consume is going to serve you, what it's going to do when it enters your body, mm-hmm. right? There's this sort of spiritual element to consuming calories. 
and thinking negatively about the thing that you're about to put in your body is not going to serve you. Yeah. Right. If you're going to, like you said, if you're going to have that piece of cake, there's no point in, you know, cursing at the cake while you're eating it. You're just setting (laughs) yourself up for failure. No, just say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this piece of cake. My body's going to absorb it. I'm going to deal with it. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to live my life in a state of wellness rather than worry. Yeah, absolutely. To think is to create. Yeah, absolutely. To think is to create. So speaking of creations, I know that you and uh, Brianne Showman, who we've had on in another episode, have created a series of recipe books, nutrition books, um, and you guys have released, I think, the first three in the series, if I remember correctly. You've got a fourth coming up. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the purpose behind the books and uh, what each one of them covers. Yeah, we um, we got together. I remember. I always remember the day I got a text from Brianne, and she's like, "Hey, do you want to? I have an idea. Do you want to do a cookbook together?" <laughs> I was like, "Sure." And we're we're a good match because she's um, she's a, very much a go getter, get her done type of disciplined person that helps me. Um, keep on track with uh, getting following through and getting things done. I, I'm a good starter um, and uh, it, it I need some some support in getting getting through and finishing things sometimes. So we anyways we paired together and we thought, well let's let's do a cookbook and then the thought of doing one big giant cookbook was daunting. I mean it, there's so much work that's involved and we thought, well why don't we, break it up into sections of what would be a final cookbook and launch each section in an Amazon book. And then once we have all, all of the sections completed, we'll have one book that we can go to print and create um, a great printed version. So we just broke it up into what we think would be the categories. So we've had soups and salads um, and, uh, we've got, well, we've got breakfast, um, and beverages and then soups and salads. And then we've got, um, muscle up mains and the last one, which will be like, uh, we haven't finalized the title, but it'll be like sweets and treats or snacks, uh, type of things. And, um, we've, uh, launched the three that are available on Amazon and, um, Brianne has put together the nutritional content of each recipe and a little bit of information, um, benefits on, you know, the different ingredients that are used in the recipes. Uh, we call it, um, feed the fire breather and, uh, the fire breather being that person, you know, in the CrossFit community, the fire breather is that, that competitor, that high end competitor, that person that, you know, competes hard and is, badass dragon athlete, you know? Um, and we, um, we are thinking of it in terms of somebody that's just taking on life. So not just the, for the CrossFitter, but that anyone that's, um, wanting to excel in their life, excel in any sport, um, and just provide some really nutritious recipes that you can use if you're meal planning, you need something in the morning to get yourself going. We've got some cool keto, like bulletproof type coffee recipes and tea recipes. There's shakes, different shakes with different um, 
things that are, have anti-inflammatory properties, you know, and all the different kinds of ingredients. And we were thinking like, what's the most nutrition, nutritious, um, and nutrient dense that we could put in a combination together into a recipe so that, um, people can eat and, and really get the benefits. And a lot of the times, you know, a lot of them, the recipes are simple. You know, we've got some chicken recipes, for example, in Muscle Up Mains, and we've got some like really cool um, herbs and spices where you've got turmeric, which has got its um, anti-inflammatory properties, but it also has some really great flavor. So, uh, you know, for me, I w- it's always about balancing, you know, something that really tastes great. And um, in my experiences uh, in all the different spice stores that I've visited and the different, (laughs) you know, research that I've done behind the spices and the benefits and, um, behind those we've included in, in the book so that people can learn, um, about that and then figure out how they can put these ingredients together to create something really nutrient dense and something super delicious. Very cool. So this is not just for gym rats this is for anyone who's looking to get some quality calories in their system absolutely very cool Mm -hmm. so um how did you guys structure the books um in terms of like layout is it is it like a standard cookbook where it's just you know like image recipe or did you guys throw in some extra things in there well we have um in the book we've we've got the beginning of the book that has the um, pantry basics. It'll have listed ingredients um, or listed ingredients to have in your pantry so that you have a pantry ready. Um, And then benefits of those. So what kind of oils to use, what kind of oils to keep in stock, what kind of spices to have. Um, And then it'll talk about, um, it goes into a section of the benefits of those products. So you can learn a little bit about that. And then each recipe will have, you know, the ingredients, the process, and then um, on the other page, it'll have the nutritional content for Mm. per serving. So you're getting it all in one place. If you are, you know, if nutrition was um, a concern, we had surveyed a few people, friends and on Facebook and asked, you know, what, what do you want to see in a cookbook? And a lot of people said they wanted to see that nutritional content to know um, what, you know, what's in it if they're, you know, counting calories. Yeah. That's kind of unique. You don't, you don't find that in a lot of cookbooks, do you? No, you don't. Um, a lot of cookbooks just have the ingredients cause it's a whole, it's a whole nother process. So that's where Brianna and I work well together because she was, she, she's done the nutritional sort of thing, um, part of it and the benefit part of it where, you know, I've had, a, I've had a collection of recipes that I've been creating since, you know, 2013, um, that I have archived, but I've also been creating new ones and, um, over the years just saved things and, um, pulled from all of the recipes that I have to, to pull my favorite ones and put them in together, um, into the one, you know, book. Gotcha. So you guys took the time to like help people figure out what they should stock their kitchens with, what the benefits of those things are. And then you've also included the nutrition information mm-hmm. inside the one book. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And we created a def- definition for fire breather. Do you want me to read it to you? 
Sure. All right. Let's see. Um, so a fire breather. So it's one who has an indomitable spirit, a person with tremendous grit. A fire breather acknowledges a challenge and faces it head on, will not give in to the face of adversity. A fire breather endures pain, pushes the limits when things get tough and knows how to both celebrate the wins and learn from the losses. Wow. So you guys are touching on some serious mindset stuff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, mindset is really everything and whatever, whatever you, wherever you go in your life. And, uh, when it comes to, um, food mindset's a huge thing. I mean, in nutrition, it's such a big part of your life. You've got to eat right every day. It's not something you can be like, well, I'm just not going to eat. <laughs> you know, it's something that that's part of you, but it also by fueling yourself and keeping your, yourself healthy and well, that way you can, you can get on, um, onto other areas of your life and be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, in your career and having the energy to, to focus, um, on create at work, or if it's at the gym, um, it might be just, you know, you're at home and you've got a bunch of kids running around and you need energy for that, right? Like there's, um, you know, there's just, it's just always with you and it's such an important piece. Right. So in the course of this conversation, we've talked a little bit about your upbringing, your cruise ship experience. Yeah, it was right? a little bit of a tangent. Your, your <laughs> business experience, your recipe experience, and you've had, you know, success in all these different areas of your life. So, you know, looking back at that and now releasing the books, I guess my question to you is what does success look like to you today? At the end of the day, for me, it's about um, feeling joy daily and um, being happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I figured you were going to come at me with that, <laughs> that fruity stuff. And you know, <laughs> if I get a puppy, I'd experience daily joy. <laughs> nice try. I can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> puppies, diamonds. Actually, puppies more than diamonds. Puppies more than diamonds? Okay. Yeah. That, that's fair enough. I'll, I'll file that away after I edit this out. don't edit it out puppies no but seriously so no i appreciate that yeah i mean obviously um i think you've taught me certainly to appreciate more of the small things in life the relationships the beauty you've definitely brought that to our relationship and i'm grateful for that and i appreciate you for for sharing that with me and opening my eyes to so many things that I was at one point disconnected from. Mm. So thank you for that. So before I ask my last question, tell these guys where they can connect with you or how they can connect with uh, you and Brienne and your books. Well, uh, the books are available on Amazon, Feed the Fire Breather. That's the title, Feed the Fire Breather? Yes, Feed the Fire Breather. And then there's um, the subtitle for uh, breakfasts and beverages um, and the sa- soups and salads, and then the um, muscle up mains. Paleoappetite.com, where I have my collection of recipes, and um, which will be converted soon uh, to hard water. Yeah, like Instagram, just Christina Marino Archer um, is my Instagram page, as well as Paleo Appetite. Very cool, very cool. So, last question is simply this How do you define wellness? I believe that you can never really arrive at wellness. 
I think it's always, um, ever changing. So that person, there's an endless pursuit of finding balance between, you know, your mental, physical, and spiritual aspects of your, of your life. Really. I can't argue with that guys. And, uh, I think we've sort of discovered in the process of asking this question of each guest that everyone has a different definition really because it hasn't been well defined yet. And that's part of the journey here. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being on. I appreciate that. And guys, be sure and check out Christina online. Be sure and check out her website and be sure and pick out, pick up her and Brianne's book on Amazon or books, I should say on Amazon, and then look for the consolidated version when that comes out to print. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care.